0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. We are still, I say it every time, it's true every time, we are still the only podcast that talks about horror films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I am one half of your hosts, Matt Monagle. I'm afraid I'm probably about to be the only host of the podcast because my friend Donato's about to uh, take a a healthy beating at the hands of a 3 million Scoville uh, hot sauce that I warned him, I swear to God, I warned him off of But no, he's just got to be he's got to be a big boy, a big lad and try it for himself. Despite my warnings, Matthew,
1: I saw it was Godzilla minus one labeled. I like literally it's a whole Godzilla actually chain of hot sauces. They have (laughs) so many different ones. I did get the baby Godzilla as well. That's only a level four. And it is a Serrano garlic hot sauce, which I can't wait to try. But yes, I saw the super death sauce that Godzilla minus one was uh, tied to. And as much as I love that movie, I I must see why I must fear the sauce. I I, I, it's me. This is who I am. I know what is going to happen. I'm going to be destroyed. I am not going to be happy about this choice, but I am still going to try it because I have to.
0: Now, I got to ask, are you are you queuing that up for the uh, the merry hour?
1: So I I have decided I will absolutely do it live. I'll probably do it for the Patreon as well. Why not? Um, But yeah, we're going to just do it at the beginning of a live episode and see how long it takes before I can start forming coherent sentences again.
0: You know, it's kind of an it's going to be an interesting lead into today's conversation. The things we do for clicks. So put a pin on that. Hold on to that. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, But Donato, we have one of my favorite people in the industry, one of my favorite people to talk to And a three-timer, a three-time returning guest of the podcast. So introductions are in order, please.
1: Absolutely. A a three-timer in the way that they were even part of the first iteration of this podcast that lasted all of five or six episodes when we were just picking movies and saying, hey, High Noon, a werewolf western, let's see how this is. And after we very quickly figured out it's way better when the guests bring the movies. So for the third time, the second time in this iteration of the podcast, we bring back the Queen of Bloody Disgusting and co-host of the Bloody Disgusting podcast, Meg Navarro. Hello.
2: Hi. I don't know what to say after that introduction. That was amazing. Thank you.
1: Off the cuff, that's what I do.
0: We're, we're 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 cynical boys. We're jaded boys. So every now and then, <laughs> it's nice to uh, to insert a little bit of authenticity, and you know, remind you that you are one of the cooler people we've met, and you do incredible work. And that's that's enough praise. We're not about praise here on the podcast, but you can put those. <laughs> <laughs> Stick those in your back pocket and pull them out the next time you need them.
2: I love that. Thank you. Well, obviously, I love you guys. I'm here three times now. So feelings mutual. Yeah.
0: Awesome. We actually, so to, to throw back to what we were talking about just a second ago with, you know, talking about things we can do for clicks. Normally on the podcast, we will talk about the history uh, of our guests and their relationship to the horror genre. We did that in episode three in High Moon, which, as Donato said, was a misfire in terms of thinking we would pick a movie for guests. If you want Megan at her full force, listen to episode 17, Burning Bright. That is the movie that she brought for us that she wanted to talk about. That's a much better experience, I think. But you can go back to either of those episodes and hear a little bit more uh, about Megan and and her relationship to the horror industry as an individual. But I want to talk a little bit because there's a lot of conversations happening right now about the state of journalism, about the state of, of, of film criticism writ large, you know, a, a lot of back and forth about what the role is and, and, and the responsibility are of people like us to, to surface movies, to engage people and to create awareness for films versus to sort of meet demand where it's at, to only write about the stuff that people are talking about, stuff that has kind of the high search volume. And I, wanna, I want you to kind of weigh in and talk about how you do this at Bloody Disgusting because one of my favorite things about you as a writer and what you do with the site is, you know, you did the, during the pandemic, that wonderful series of like stay home, watch horror, where you were talking about, you know, movies that a lot of people hadn't seen that were around centralized themes, you know, a theme a week that you could dig into. I love that you are always turning back the clock and looking at stuff that people would probably find really interesting, but may not have heard of. So how do you, how do you balance that? How do you meet the demand, but also make sure you're out there championing movies that people want to watch?
2: Gosh, uh, it's kind of a loaded question, right? Where do you even begin? Because I feel like we're constantly inundated with so much that we're having to juggle versus like SEO and where's audience interest. But we're also in an era where everything is getting released so fast, so much that, you know, I was having a conversation with my editor just today about how there are things that people on social media were so excited. This is the best movie ever, like, four years ago or five years ago that never get brought up again today. So I kind of feel a little bit like more of a historian sometimes. I Mm. I think I gravitate to looking at, like, cataloging horror's history, and that's part of it. So trying to make sure that these movies, these independent movies especially, aren't falling through the cracks. I feel like theatrical horror, everybody knows, it gets all of the marketing love because the studios can afford it. But then there's all these little releases that are not going to get that same push. So it's kind of like trying to find a mix. Like every, you know, for that column in particular, it's trying to find a mix of what people are familiar with and what people aren't familiar with, because I kind of have found, and I don't know if you know, you guys have found this in, in your list curating and your criticism and your writing on horror, that if you show people like uh, one, if I did a list of ten and it's things that they have never heard of, deep cuts, they're not going to have a hard time finding it. Then there's a disconnect and they're less interested. So if you kind of like dangle a little breadcrumbs, like you may have heard this now look at these at movies if you yeah. like this you'll probably like i don't know if that i'm rambling and i don't know if that even makes sense but it's kind of like this juggling of really wanting to spotlight things that i think are getting overlooked versus like here's some maybe not so well known but enough there's enough audience there that it's going to help bridge that gap between obscure and like popular fare
0: yeah
1: I think that's very true because when I started doing the horror listicles at IGN for streaming and I have four ongoing, was it Shutter, Max, um, Prime Video and Netflix. And it's so funny because the the Max and the Amazon ones are ones I started myself. So like they were the first, my first iteration was the first one of it. And Max at the time had all of these popular titles. They didn't really have any deep dives. Some Criterion, they did have a Criterion collection, so some horror stuff spilled in. But the Max one was all big, like The Conjuring, all those kind of titles. So I write that list, and it's got about 10, 12 entries. And then I write Amazon Prime's list, that's the one that has all the lesser seen let's say a lot more indie not as much mainstream at the time when i started the list now they've gotten a little better because they have stuff like cocaine bear and renfield blah blah blah. yeah anyway but i look at the comments because just you know i'll just check on the comments every never, now do and then. never do that never do that but it was so funny because the first comment on the hbo max when i put up is what the hell where are all the deep cuts this list sucks and then the other comment on the prime one that i put up is why are these all movies I haven't heard of this looks this list sucks so it's like no matter what yeah. you do you're not gonna win in that argument
2: so you try the best you can to do a little bit of a catch-all to where it's not complete you know expert level but it's you know it's, it's somewhere intermediate so that way you get the best of both worlds if you get the newcomers and they've never really done horror before there's something there if they've art, you know the the Hardcore horror lovers will find, you know, it's like a catch all situation, which is kind of a tightrope walk.
1: I also think I I brought this up a bunch on the podcast here. I brought it up elsewhere. But another problem is the idea that we are driven by the algorithm on social media. We are driven by things that get its attention and clicks. And unfortunately, that is what people know. So I think what has happened over the time and what, what you just said, Meg, before about, oh my God, this little indie movie that we all love at a festival, nobody yeah. really talks talk about it again yeah. because yeah. what gets shared and retweeted is your opinions on Halloween and Friday the 13th over and over again. Like that's the stuff that gets attention. So that has trained people to just talk about what is important, quote unquote, what will be shareable, what will actually get the most audience because- why would I say something that only gets three or four likes about a movie no one's seen when I can just do another hot take about one of the hot horror properties and go viral? Like it's, it is a problem. It is an issue that I think has spilled over into the way that coverage has kind of fallen into.
2: It has, but you know, I've kind of found that social media is such a bubble and you cannot listen to it. Um, What is the, there's, there's a popular like kind of phrase or adage about trends if you're trying to catch the wave it's too late so be the trendsetter like I'm more gravitate towards people who speak their mind and like you know spotlight the movies that that aren't discussed versus everybody let's all jump and have a conversation on Borderlands trailer that just dropped and here's my opinion and here's my opinion and you know then it just becomes an echo chamber and I guess it does probably feed in a a little bit to you know, the algorithm and how people treat that. But I i don't know. I, I think the thing that works for, for me is just trying to find a balance. Um, make sure you toe dip a little bit into both worlds. You know, you are kind of acknowledging the popular stuff that everybody's having a conversation about, but you make sure you don't ignore the stuff that nobody else is talking about.
0: So when the two of you, because I think of, you guys both write a lot of lists and specifically you write a lot of horror related lists and you do, you do a really good job. Donato, this is not a compliment. I'm, I'm just stating a fact. <laughs> you, do, you do a really good job of showing why lists can be a powerful tool in the hand of good writers, not just because they're capitalizing on keywords or search phrases, but because you know, it's the lists when done right, harken back to like the the vhs picks right employee picks on the on the wall of a vhs store like when you do it right it's that level of like oh like i like this person's taste i want to connect with what what they have to say and i've got a sense of why they'd like it so talk to me a little bit about that process because i've written a couple lists and i get really bad analysis paralysis list building is not really my thing because i'm like i have to watch like i'm like well i need to watch 400 movies in order to narrow it down to the 10 that i'm going to put on this list and it becomes this hard thing for me where i always feel like i'm only partially correct. So what do you feel when you're saying, I'm going to do something in a topic area, I'm going to go and, and you know, talk about maybe a nationality of of horror. I'm going to talk about, you know, uh, in honor of today's film, Chinese horror. I'm going to talk Hong Kong horror. I'm going to talk about, you know, horror from South America. How do you kind of cue yourself up to to do it in a way that you're satisfied with what you have kind of on that list? Is there do you feel like you have to watch too much? Do you feel like you crowdsource to find recommendations that might be even off of your beaten paths? Is there a process that you bring into that writing?
2: I mean, I don't really crowdsource because then I feel like I lose my voice a little bit if I'm mm. looking to what others might pick. Because then I think it's it's kind of not really a slippery slope, but I think it's too easy to get away from your core kind of theme, you know, yeah. but, If I'm doing a weekly theme on streaming picks, I I usually pick a theme and I don't really go crazy with the watching because luckily my entire life revolves around horror. So I have a pretty good like library already in my head, but I do, I do spend a lot of time and I know so does Donato uh, browsing these big libraries of streaming services because that's usually where I find a lot of inspiration, you know, like just streaming Tubi or the depths of Amazon prime prime video you'll find certain things and then that will trigger another memory of something similar. And it's just kind of like a breadcrumb thing. So usually surprisingly streaming libraries have become like my biggest, uh, asset for curating lists.
1: Yeah. And it is hitting the balance as we talked about before, because think about how many times you read something that just comes off as pretentious immediately, especially in a list. It's like you just start reading a list that's all movies and you've never heard of in a way that is, aggressively you've never heard of an I know more than you kind of stuff. So Yeah, no. You have to be accessible. You have to be welcoming. And to do that, there has to be some sort of familiar- familiarity. But when you build the trust with the reader at that point and when they actually understand, they're like, oh, okay, he's, this person is here to help. This writer is here to open my boundaries, but also give me what I want at the same time. Then you can like kind of flow in the little picks here and there. Like, Hey, I know you probably haven't heard of this one, but I'm going to give it the vote of confidence. And I think about when I wrote, you know, I did a zombie list for the rap. I did a vampire list for IGN and both times I did that. I did. I dove. I dove headfirst in because I had not seen a bunch of movies I needed to.
0: I remember, I I remember you working on the the vampire list that consumed like the better part of a month for you.
1: Yeah. So like, I wasn't going to write that list because again, later to horror, later to building my library and all that stuff. I wasn't going to go into that list until I actually had a base set of like, I have seen everything I need to, to write this list now. And like, I'm, I'm a little less uh, worried about asking friends being like, Hey, what are your favorites? Cause I just need, I I need to know what I need to catch up on. But yeah, once you start getting into like reading other people's thoughts and stuff, it's, it's just the same to me as, not reading other reviews of a movie before you write your own because like yeah. you need to get your thoughts out first before you can get any influence elsewhere so like i think it's a little bit of that when you write your list my, my list is mine i want to make sure it's mine t- till the end and then you know but I'm not gonna not gonna avoid help let's say you know
2: yeah part. yeah
0: and when you're when you're dealing we're talking about lists. when you're dealing with um well let me let me ask it this way you know, I one of the things that I did before we uh, before I sat down or after I sat down to watch the film, you know, as I went and looked at the uh, essay that you had written, Megan, about this film in particular on Bloody Disgusting, which was, you know, I had spent all this time like, you know, kind of like falling down a, a Wikipedia rabbit hole in order to understand kind of the production history. of it, And we'll get to that in a moment. But, you know, it was all right there on the page for you, too. When I when I read the the essay, I was like, oh, this is everything you could possibly want, want to know about this film will encourage folks to go check that out when they're done listening to this episode. What is the space for sort of like those deeper dives into films? And obviously Donato and I are biased because we run (laughs) certifiedforgotten.com, which is all about deeper dives into stuff that have kind of like been a little bit overlooked. But is there a different kind of mindset from the writer side or even from the I am contributing to a site that needs to have traffic when you're saying I'm going to dig into something that I know there isn't already an audience there for?
2: I'm probably the worst person to ask this type of stuff because I am such a stubborn person that I try not to even think about that. I mean, it is traffic. You do need traffic, but the thing that I have learned doing this for as long as I have is that you also can't predict traffic. SEO is a tool And it's great. And it's kind of a thing we have to have and lean into. But at the same time, you're never going to predict what's going to explode. You're never going to, you know, you can write about a deep dive like The Seventh Curse and somebody will like it and share it on Reddit and it will just completely snowball and nobody could have guessed that. So which is also why it's kind of justification to go out on a limb and champion these movies and dig into it. It's, you know, again, I keep saying it's all about balance because you do need to make sure that you're doing the the primary ask for your site to, to hit, you know, your traffic needs, but it's just as important to follow your passion because it can be soul sucking to write just SEO stuff, you know, so write about what you love because that's where it's going to come through. People can tell the difference and you never know w- when you're going to kind of strike traffic gold, so to speak. So you might as well just follow your passions, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's yeah. a trite answer, but.
1: No, I mean, and th- there are ways to to use SEO to your advantage. I, I think we talked about this a little bit uh, when we were podcasting a while back. I forget what episode it was, but uh, the Slash Film sale had just happened. And so, you know, we we're talking about the, the sense that, Yes, SEO is a thing that bigger sites and bigger companies want to focus on because if you chase SEO, you are probably chasing where the clicks are. Yeah. But again, as you just said, Megan, like you can't always predict it. You can't. But in any case, like there are ways to take the SEO and use it to your advantage. Where, again, if you're just writing an SEO streaming list, like I have fun with my streaming lists because I am going to not just pick the obvious. I am going to try to work in recommendations and like use it as a guide or. Whenever the SEO comes out, um, let's say it's a historical anniversary for a movie or something like that, I use that to try and dive into whatever that film is and find a hook that hasn't been written about before versus just the boilerplate. It's been 25 years. This is how much money it made. I liked it. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, you can you can use SEO creatively, and I think that's again what a lot of people misunderstand or want to not understand because SEO has to be a villain, like. We all have to have a villain in this industry and SEO is an easy one. But I like I, I have fun writing SEO work because it challenges me to be creative in boundaries that are way more rigid, if that makes sense.
2: It's like a writer's prompt for you.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And we have gotten in the habit, I think a lot of writers got in the habit of using SEO as sort of this catch-all phrase that it means like it means social media and Google trends and yeah. Google search and like all of these different things, but at a very basic level, right? Like SEO just means like what are people looking for on search engines, yes. Google in, in particular. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that Donato and I talk a lot about with regards to Certified Forgotten, and I think that this p- plays exactly into what you're talking about with Bloody Disgusting, Megan, is the notion that like the things that are popular today or tomorrow are the things that nobody's talking about today. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean that, you know, we live in a golden era of home distribution and a film that nobody could see, that that was unavailable, right? That was like, Bootleg copies on DVD that like a couple hundred people might own stateside tomorrow it gets an Arrow Films release and there is this explosion of interest and there's this excitement about the film and if you're one of the five biggest sites and you write about it when it comes out that's yours like that top you know the top spots on the SERP are, are yours. Sorry, search into results page of yours. But if you wrote about it four years ago, if you've built up some some page history and some site history, if people have been looking and finding that article, that essay that you wrote on this movie over time, you stand a much better chance at kind of not only benefiting from the traffic as it's on the upswing, but kind of maintaining your position when Entertainment Weekly decides they're going to do like an AI generative piece on XYZ Mm -hmm. movie because they see that there's a spike in traffic happening to it. So the wave comment that you made, Megan, I think is important too. It's not just about responding to what people are searching for now. And a lot of of times that's too late unless you're a really big, really established site. It's trying to stay ahead of the curve and figuring out what people are going to be looking for tomorrow.
2: Well said, yeah.
1: And I think the greatest example of that we've had recently, Skinamarink, uh, like when I saw that the premiere of Fantasia, it was kind of like, "All right, that's a cool experimental movie, but you know, are we really going to be talking about this that much longer?" And then yeah. holy shit, it was like being ahead of that curve and getting that review out so early for Slash Film. I had multiple sites like immediate, like hitting me up like a month or two later, like. Hey, we need, we need to review a skinner, do you have one? And it's like, I wrote mine already. I already did mine. Like y'all didn't want it in the beginning, yeah, yeah. but then all the sites clamor for it later. So it's like, I, I do like, if you're able, if you're able to take those chances and you're able, or sorry, if the site's budget, let's say is able to take those chances. And as a writer, you can pitch those and sell those. Like you still should. Cause that's exactly it. Like you don't know when you're going to skinner rank. Or I remember this example of an old site I used to write for, and I reviewed some dog shit cave diving horror movie that i did not like an indie that no one talked about whatever but all of a sudden it hit netflix so it did nothing for the release it did nothing for the months after nobody talked about it it had no value and then all of a sudden it's getting like a thousand clicks a day like for the site it was a lot but like you know it's getting immediately climbing the ranks And everyone's going why is everyone clicking on this review well it hit netflix and netflix is a great guidance system for like Oh, if I need to write about something and it's high on the Netflix chart, probably pretty decent. So like, yeah, just those little examples of trying to beat that curve. But then again, getting a site to actually take that chance is harder and harder now because, well, it's not going to do anything in the beginning and we have to wait for Netflix. Well, all right.
2: Yeah, but you can't predict this stuff, which is crazy. If people could predict, studios would have, you know, made hit after hit after hit and there would be no losses because they would know. But they don't. You can't you can't predict this stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, what algorithm would just basically say that everything everywhere all at once was like a surefire, like, you know, uh, Academy Award nominee. I don't think I, if there are like I've seen what algorithms can put out. I use generative AI in my day job. And trust me, they're, they're not exactly coming up with like a dimension hopping, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, a story of, of intergenerational loss and love. It's a little bit outside of their purview. Well, before we talk about today's film, um, which I think is a great example of a lot of the things that we're talking about, and hopefully in a few years' time will be the kind of movie that will be, people will be like, I need to go hear folks talk about this. Um, I kind of, I guess, want to get a little bit of a pulse check too. You know, We have talked a lot about uh, horror essays, horror criticism, You know, the ability for us to write about the kind of movies that we love and champions the, the things that we like. You know, I know that we're living in a particularly weird era. I mean, we we're coming off of a few months where there had been a ton of layoffs in publications, you know, across the country, of, across all types of industries. And I think, I feel like when I want to feel good about a, a, the success of a horse, I I look to Bloody Right, and I think that that is a site that continues to do it well, does that balance of you know creating demand versus meeting demand, and obviously has has talented people that are helping tell horror stories online. So. Megan, I guess, big question for you. How do you feel kind of about the state of horror journalism in 2024?
2: Probably the same as most of us. Scared a little bit. Mm. I feel like it's a very scary time. Um, Definitely everybody's got the SEO on their brain and what that means and google changes affecting traffic and that's just the, like the technical aspect of it um but yeah all of the layoffs well, just today there was conversations in the news about warner brothers is probably looking to sell and they're making a whole lot of big spending habits that they're looking to sell and if like one of the big studios are selling what does that look like i don't know it just i feel like it's one of those situations where everywhere you look something is on fire which means that everybody should be aware of and concerned about. But what do we do about it? I don't know. So I feel like there's the genre is doing well, but journalism is, I think, going through an evolution. And so that's very scary because we don't know what it's evolving or changing into. So what does that look like? So, yeah, I think we're just kind of all in the thick of it.
0: Do we take any enthusiasm or excitement from the current wave we're seeing of worker owned publications? I think of sites like Defector, which I, I'm a, a backer of. Um, I'm a tabletop nerd, and a new site just popped up literally yesterday called Rascal, which is dedicated to worker owned, dedicated to like uh, tabletop role playing games as well. And I think you can kind of pick a corner. There's Aftermath in the video game space as well. Like all of these publications that are sort of journalists that are saying, you know, the only way that stuff is going to survive is if we kind of take it into our own hands and and own the means of production, you know, are these things that, that give any of us like a, a burst of confidence about the ability to diversify the number of publications that are out there and thriving, or do we feel that, you know, the sustainability of this is, is an open question?
2: Kind of both. Um, I mean, I think it's an open question and that's, I mean, it's going to be an open question for a while, but I kind of feel like it's a waiting game because it's exciting to see people take things into their own hands. I think that's kind of what you have to do. We need these very smart people and their voices. Um, But it's also very hard for emerging publications to not get crushed under the tidal wave of big outlets. So it's like I want them to succeed, but I don't know what the way forward is.
1: Yeah. Like that's my, my big takeaway right now is just, it's not the time to start a new outlet. Like that, that that time is over the wave, the wave you're trying to ride the wave. You're not part of leading it forward or anything like that. And I totally understand the idea of basically crowdfunding as the workers and saying, we're going to do it ourselves. And there's a rebellious spirit there and there's a good story there, but Again, is that really sustainable, like just relying on other people and trying to win them over to be like, hey, we're good enough at what we do. Uh, We need to just keep getting people to donate to us or, you know, give us funding and stuff like that. And, you know, that's different than a company coming in with the financial stability and all the all of that coming with it. Uh, it it shouldn't be on us. Like, we, I I just want to write my little things and not have to. There's a great article just came out the other day, and it was basically yeah. like you can't just be a writer anymore. No. You have to be a writer and an influencer and all these other things because it's like you have to build a brand. Like, you can't just sit there and write your little words, get paid, and have a decent life anymore. Like, you have to sell yourself 24 seven. It is a 24 seven job, and I like a lot of people don't want to do that. Like, that's an issue, and, and they shouldn't have to, like, let's say the thing, like they shouldn't have to, but we are now in an industrial place where you do have to, and there is less and less viability in just having a steady job in the industry. And that is, again, just a reality we have to sit with. regional journal- journalism especially has never been the top of the food chain, let's say, for uh, no. for making money. So that itself is, is hard on its own, like just for a horror site to survive. They're not making the money that other big sites are, so... I, just against the, against the grain here. I don't know.
2: Not, not to play devil's advocate, but it is kind of an interesting thing where we now have to deal with, you know, influencers and people who studied Google and did a lot of Googling and decided that people with education experience, they're on the same playing field. And so that's flooding the field, too, to add confusion to the mix of like, where do we go from here? Yeah.
0: I you know, I'm we've talked about this on the show before. I'm I'm a bit more charitable probably than a lot of my peers when it comes to like, you know, TikTok influencers slash critics and where they sort of sit in, in yeah. the realm of things. I think a lot of there's a lot of incredibly talented people that that are coming up right now in short form video. Um and I think that they're going to help shape the next generation of you know of of film lovers and film audiences. But I think that they're in the minority of yes. the overall number of people that are doing it. Yes, And, you know, it's it's funny that you brought those. I knew you were going to bring up that article Donato because it is like I found myself. I mentioned this on social just the other day. Like I wrote uh, or I interviewed one of the stars of of Warrior uh, now streaming on Netflix. Go watch it. Go (laughs) turn it on in the background, please. I want season four. I'm a bad journalist and a good fan. I don't know what the, the breakdown is there. But the first thing that I did when I wrote that article, like I went to the subreddit and I posted it there and it hit the front page of the warrior subreddit because they're like, you know, it's a big site and it's a smaller community, only about 10,000 people. I never would have done that five years ago. I never would have done that. It would have felt like weird and like self-promotion and kind of like gross in a way. Now I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, Amelia, editor at IGN, Amelia took a, a chance on an article that she didn't know if was going to succeed or not. Warrior is a twice canceled show. And I was like, part of it was like, hey, I got to drum up interest and make sure that not only are people supporting a really good show, but that like my editor is getting her money's worth when it comes to, you know, the 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 traffic that this piece does. So do I feel weird about that now? No. And I, I feel weird about not feeling weird about it. I feel weird that like the industry's gone to a place where I'm like, hell yeah, I will do whatever I need to to get this article in front of folks.
2: I mean, article aside, you have to, because nobody else is going to, nobody else is going to promote your, your work, but you, you know, which, which is, you know, tied to that article, but it's, it's kind of separate in my head because Mm -hmm. it's not the same. tweeting out an article is a small thing than the 24 seven. Like, I guess it's a small cog of that, but yeah, nobody else is going to do it. So you shouldn't feel bad. It's different than like, here's a video and here's me promoting myself 24 seven, but advocate for your work. There's nothing wrong with that.
0: All right, so there, if, you, if you're if you an aspiring writer or a current writer and you're listening to the this podcast episode, first of all, you have great taste in movies. Second of all, uh, there's, like it's a weird industry. It's not in a great place. Advocate for yourself. There are pockets of people out there who are care and doing their best work. So I hope that you walk away from this with, with a little bit of optimism. I feel like this was actually an optimistic conversation for as much <laughs> as we were you know, a little gloomy about elements of, of the film industry. I heard a lot of enthusiasm and hope. Uh, maybe not so much from you, Donato. You're a cynical <laughs> son of a bitch.
1: I mean, my honest closing point would be just don't. But at the same time, maybe a different take on that is find what's next, because that's the thing. I think the industry is in such a place right now that we don't know what is next. We don't know what the next generation yeah. is, because we are seeing it change and it's like, we're on the Titanic and I'm just typing on my little keyboard going, I don't know how much more I got here. Like, I don't know. I don't
0: know. Like
1: my, like, you know, we see budgets getting dried up and opportunities are going away for what we used to do. So I think if you do want to consider this for your job or at least a freelance side hustle, you have to figure out. Yeah.
0: And pitch certified forgotten. Then we'll probably give you $75 twice a year. Maybe. Twice a year. maybe. (laughs) There you go. You're in great shape. All right. Hey, I, I had a really fun time with that conversation, but I know that Donato is going to like throw things at the screen if we don't get to talking about the seventh curse here quickly. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about the seventh curse. We'll be right back. we forgot to talk about the baby murder
1: <laughs> baby murder yo Did you ever play grape escape as a kid the tabletop game
0: no yes yes
1: you it's you yes. play as little grapes made of play-doh and the whole thing is you have to get around the board and not get crushed by things and that is exactly what i thought about when i saw the baby crusher 3000
0: in this movie
2: baby crusher 3000 yeah
0: yeah i yeah i I mean i i, I want to believe those kids deserved it they knew what they were doing they it's it's on them it's on them
2: It is, it is a black metal band name waiting to happen, like Child Grinder.
1: Yes, the Child Child
0: Grinders. Grinders. Child Grinder, but the lead singer has to sing only like Tiny Tim in honor of Elvis Troy.
2: They need a a go-go dancer that's like Maggie Chun when she's possessed by the uh, sorcerer or cursed and she's wielding a chainsaw or not chainsaw, a machete and going nuts.
0: There you go. If you're listening, this is your this is your death metal band, baby, baby crusher, baby grinder, whatever it's called. Um, singing falsetto. Machete and, babes. And machete babes. Come on, this is gold. This is gold.
1: It just sounds I anything I want to say about this movie sounds like a Stefan sketch from SNL because it it's just is. like
2: I thought of that earlier too. This club has everything. Yep.
1: Baby crushing, bleeding statues, worm things bat things
2: exploding arteries,
1: exploding arteries. The curse, the seventh curse.
0: (laughs) The worms are legion.
1: (laughs) Anyway, that's what you can expect and more to come.
0: Okay, welcome back. So today's film, brought to us by the one, the only Meg Navarro, is The Seventh Curse. Released in 1986 by famed Hong Kong production company Golden Harvest, The Seventh Curse opens with Dr. Yun, played by Chin Siu Ho, thwarting a terrorist attack at a local hospital. You see, Dr. Yun, or Chester, as the American dub confusingly refers to him, <laughs> is no ordinary doctor. He's known far and wide for his bravery and his prowess as a martial artist. But when a magical curse begins to cause his blood vessels to burst, true story, Dr. Yuan is forced to return to the jungles of Thailand, where he once survived battle with an ancient cult. Now, with a little help from his friends, including a pre-John Wu Chai Yun-fat, Dr. Yuan must battle monks and monsters and rid the world of an ancient evil. Uh, Well, gosh, guys, let's talk about this movie. Uh, Megan, what made you decide you wanted to bring the seventh curse to the podcast?
2: Because everybody needs to see this movie. Everybody. No, it's it's so much fun. It's a kitchen sink movie. What kind of movie you want? The Seventh Curse has it. It's in there. You want adventure? It's in there. You want a little romance? It's in there. Maybe lust. That's in there. Uh, gore? Horror? You like Raiders of the Lost Ark? Big Trouble Little China? A Little Alien? All of that. It's in there.
0: Donato, you've waited long enough, friend. Let's hear it. Let's Let's hear it.
1: Oh no! I mean, like the, Meg got me on this because Meg was just tweeting about it incessantly. She kept bringing up this movie, The Seventh Curse, and said it might have had Demon Wind esque qualities. So yes. that was my selling point. I watched it prior. I had a great time with it, and watching it again on a second go around was just like it, I my brain just felt like it was opening even wider, <laughs> and I was like absorbing so much more of it because the first time you watched it, it's a lot of what the fuck. It's a lot of looking around and saying wait, they were just having a conversation. Where did these ninjas come from? Stuff like that. Um, But on a second watch, it's even more baffling and 10 times more entertaining. Ah, man, it's just what what Meg said. It has every little piece. Like, literally, I'm sitting there going, like, this is the aliens portion. This is the Indiana Jones portion. This is XYZ, XYZ. It's just a Rolodex of all these fun genre elements, but then laid atop an actual, like, Hong Kong uh, martial arts movie. So... What is there not to like about that?
0: What is there not to like about that?
1: Uh, let's go, let's go, Monagle. So, right. <laughs> no, no.
0: I have not said shit. By the way, uh, I, I have, I have 20. withheld my opinion on this film until this very moment in time. Uh, I really liked it, and so here's the here's the reason why, right? Because Donato compared this to Demon Wind, which was a huge fucking mistake. If you want me. <laughs> to go into a movie and feel excited about it because i think demon wind is successful in what it does despite itself right like there, there are it is your quintessential like 80s low budget throw a bunch of ideas at the wall you know things don't seem like they fit together um but you that leads to sort of this like accidental alchemy of like some zany moments on screen this is different this is the this is a like you said Make there's a million things happening in this movie, but it's all through the lens of an industry that was sort of transmuting as many Hollywood tropes and as many Hollywood ideas as it could, and like finding ways to make that exciting for new audiences. As I was watching this, I found myself thinking a lot about like Italian cinema of the 1970s, right? Mm. Spaghetti westerns and giallos that were basically repurposing the tropes of like American films in order to come to something which was both campy, but also in a lot of ways sort of better than the genres that they were making fun of. And so the difference for me for the seventh curse is the seventh curse is not an assembly of pieces that don't fit together. It is a gonzo send up of Spielberg. It is a gonzo spend of alien. It is somebody that is basically making The kind of movie that they would have made at 14 years old that is a distillation of every fucking film that they've ever loved. And when you tie that into the fact that it's not a bad movie, it is in keeping with its tradition as a Golden Harvest film, an incredibly well shot, incredibly Mm -hmm. fucking well fight choreographed film. All of that works. So Donato, don't sell me. Don't (laughs) sell me on Demon Wind. Sell me on like a crazy kick-ass martial arts monster movie.
1: I didn't sell you specifically saying it was Demon Win. I was just trying to prepare you in the right way to say it had Demon Win qualities. But to my credit, I said over and over again. I think I might have said it to Meg directly. I've said it to other people like online and stuff. I I said you were gonna like this. I very much thought and believed that Seventh Curse was gonna be for you. So I am proven right here. Is all that I'm hearing?
0: Yeah, you're fair. That's fair. Uh, I want to. So is, is, as everybody said, can we continue with the podcast now that everybody knows that I actually <laughs> like the film? <laughs>
2: We'll I feel like everybody it. was
0: kind of holding their breath a little bit. On that I one.
2: was, I was, I was like, I don't know, I don't know if this would be for you, but your taste, I can, I can peg Donato's taste more, yours a little bit. I know if there's guilt and heavy ambition, which you know, in hindsight now, I should have thought so because this is very ambitious. You do love ambitious yeah. messes.
0: Yeah, so, I like, I like sad sacks or big swings and literally nothing in between. So
2: yeah, and this is a big swing. So mm-hmm. yeah, okay okay, I shouldn't have been so worried.
0: So Meg, let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the, I guess the history and the context of the film, because in the article that you wrote, you go, you do a really good job of highlighting why everybody involved, most of the people involved in this film are somebody that you know, or should know from their other work. Like this is not a, it, like every, a lot of the actors in the film, the filmmaker himself, uh, Lam Nai Kai. All of these are people that have a tr- a good tradition, have cult classics, or in, of course, in the case of Chow Yun, Chow Yun Fat, um, you know, a, a history of prestige. Talk a little bit about the talent involved in this because it's kind of a, a killer lineup.
2: It is okay. So this is a movie that is inspired by a very popular book series um, in Hong Kong. The I think it's there might actually I think there's two series based on the character. So the Wisely which is Chow Yun-fat's character. And this was the same year that he actually struck it big in a different movie. So this was right before he became this huge action star. And he was playing a supporting character, Wisely, who has 145 novels uh, written about this character. And then his, like, the main character in this is uh, Dr. Yuan, and uh, he has a different set of novels. And then no, Ch- got- I'm
0: sorry, we have to refer to him as Chester. We have to Chester. refer to him as Chester for the rest of the movie.
2: Chester has a different set of novels, too. So, they've, they've, you know, before you even have the casting, this is a property that is actually well known. And Golden Harvest thought that this was going to be like this huge, massive series franchise for them because the books are so well. So you have Chow Yun-fat, and this was right on the cusp of him becoming uh, this huge action star that, you know, transcended borders. And then you've got Maggie Chun who is incredible uh she's a huge star not necessarily at the time but she definitely right around the era where she got really big um you already mentioned elvis right
0: yeah elvis Choi, who's yeah uh, well known in in martial arts circles
2: yeah so you've got like really high caliber martial arts people in front of the camera and then the director lam night kai well uh I'm not sure if this is obscure. It's definitely less obscure in like horror circles, but it's a cult film that everybody loves, which is Ricky, the story of Ricky-O. That was my first introduction. And once I realized this was the same director, I'm like, yeah, okay, this makes perfect sense. But top to bottom, this is a movie that you wouldn't think would have the high caliber talent that it does, like looking at the premise. Um, But yeah, it's a crazy, insanely stacked cast and crew.
0: I want a quick shout out to my uh, my college roommate freshman year, Brian Larson. Uh, I don't know if you listen to the show, Brian. If you do, text me. Uh, but he was the biggest Riccio fan in, in the entire world. That was like his shit to a T, like cartoonish gore and love and violence like that. So I do think, I think that that is probably, I mean, certainly it's the bigger film, but I do feel like it's a perfect companion piece. Like If you like that, you're going to love this. It's, it's yeah. It is the same energy in the studio.
2: Yes. Didn't Conan O'Brien have that like didn't he reuse clips from Ricky O pretty often? Am I miss? I'm gonna have to look this up now, but I think he had like the pot like the head explosion that he would use often in like the early era.
0: That sounds right. I want it to be true, so it is true, I think.
2: I think I'm yeah. I think well, I'm me, right.
0: I think one of the things that's fun about this film too is that it sort of is it takes place at, a, at an intersection or an evolution, I think, of Hong Kong cinema a little bit too, because this is, you know, right before John Wu really, 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 really made it big, right? This is this is before the films that he made with Chai Yun-fat and before he became, you know, those two, both actor and director, kind of, like you said, transcended boundaries and borders and were brought to the United States to work. Um, but it's still, you know, the, the the film is kind of a mishmash of a lot of different types of movies that were sort of popular you know there's a part of me that wants to believe that they have the opening police assault scene which is fucking wild By the way, <laughs> like yeah i i i don't you know i the amount of collateral damage the amount of hostages that probably were shot during that assault is is just like it's it's fun to think about but it's, it's, you know, this is a movie that begins with what we would think of as sort of a traditional Hong Kong crime action scene, you know, police, madcap gunfight. And then for the rest of the movie, it is something entirely different. So it's really fun to watch a movie that's kind of sort of serves as its own little microchasm for all the different types of like genre stuff that was happening in Hong Kong that was becoming popular overseas. It's all in this one movie. And I wonder if part of that just means somebody along the way was like, we need to make the world's best fucking trailer. We need to be able to sell the shit out of this internationally.
2: You know, I've never looked up the trailer, but what what would that look like? How how do you encapsulate this movie in a trailer?
0: I don't know. I and no also,
2: idea. you know, it's a Christmas movie on top of that.
0: Wait is it a christmas movie
2: the the early parts like there's there's the opening siege and then it goes into the party where we kind of set up the curse and oh, that's yeah. that's Christmas. There's a whole brawl that happens that where one body gets thrown into a pile of nutcrackers, which in my twisted sense of humor mind that's foreshadowing for something else that comes later, but yeah, so it's a Christmas movie to boot.
1: Well, and it's so highly detailed. It's so obscure and all of the things you're talking about, like it, this is to me, the best example of like a genre hybrid because it goes full force into every genre it's trying to play with. It's not imbalanced. There's not one that takes over in the other. Um, I, I'm just thinking about the oddest details of that first party sequence that Meg just made reference to. Like you're just hearing a conversation between two wealthy dudes in suits and one's an author and like he just wrote a book on like horniness and the climate. And like
2: that author who also appears at the tail end is the author of the Wisely series.
1: Oh, hell yeah. No way. Yes.
2: <laughs> so they they put the author in the movie. Yeah
1: amazing and again he writes a brilliant work apparently on horniness and the climate but like
0: the the conversation right
1: sorry it's an easy mathematical equation but like starting the movie off with such a weird note and that's already after the super over the top police siege scene where literally they ask a character to go in and plant a bomb and he goes i don't have any experience they're like yeah but you're brave and like okay (laughs) That's the
2: qualification you need
1: yeah you're right you can do that so you've already been welcomed in this world that doesn't give a fuck like literally off the gate this world doesn't care about what you think um and just from there i mean the gore super fun the fight sequences beautifully choreographed it's a kind of movie where <laughs> bone daddy can turn into a snake bat and then chow yun just blows him up with an rpg and like that's pure that is just pure cinema to me but it is the maximalist approach to all of those things it, it doesn't take Anything for granted, and I when we see a lot of genre hybrids, and, and horror comedies are always my example of like, is your horror comedy going to be scary and funny, or is it just going to be funny and you're gonna are you gonna forget the horror, or is it just gonna be horror and you're gonna not be funny and forget that aspect of it? And I feel like we get the imbalance too often, the scales aren't weighed properly, and the amazing thing for me. It, somehow and against this movie's better fucking judgment, even at times, the seventh curse is incredibly well balanced and it does everything. It promises like everything it sets out. It promises gore bonanza, all that stuff. It does that.
0: Well, I, I want to ask um, both of you uh, kind of a question. Cause I Meg, you've seen this a couple times. Donato, you were on your second watch, I believe. Can, can either of you remember thinking back through the film when, when you were sold on it, because i I know that there's always one of the fun things that we do right is when you watch something that's a that's definitely a little bit out there, there's that process maybe this is just me when I'm watching it. I'm like i i don't I don't know how I feel about this. You're kind of like, I need to see if this is gonna commit to the bit or if it's gonna go off the rails, but there's always a point I think where you're like you make the decision that you're like, I like this, this is good, and it's good because of this the weird shit that's happening. So I'm curious if either of you can kind of remember a scene or a place in the movie where you were like, I am on this film's wavelength.
2: There's kind of a two-parter to this for me, because it's one of those where you fall in love a little bit and then wholesale, you know, it's like a toe dip and then you're full in into the deep end. And that was, so the first kind of moment where I'm like, wherever this movie's going, I'm on board, which was the kind of introduction to the Curse itself, where the guy from Thailand shows up and he's like, by the way, don't have sex. It's going to trigger it. Yeah. And he immediately disregards that and pays the price for it. And the whole setup is hysterical, where I'm like, this movie is wacky and going places and I'm in it. But then the moment that the sorcerer speaks is <sighs> when I was like, this movie, I love you. So that's that's my my love affair with this movie.
0: I am so so sad for Elvis Troy. I like <laughs> I wish if I, all the wishes I've ever gotten when you when you move through life and you're like, "Oh, I want if I had three wishes, I wish that." All three of my wishes, if I got three wishes, would be I want to be in the theater the first time that Elvis Troy watched the American dub of the movie because when somebody when he opened his mouth and somebody else's voice started speaking, that dude must have been looking for an exit.
2: But have you seen the subtitles because the dub takes cues after what he was throwing down in the subtitled version. He might have approved.
0: I uh, But the, the is that a, like, I was watching a clip of it with Andrea and she was like, is, is he being dubbed by a woman? And I honestly have no idea. Like maybe. maybe. it is the dirt. It is the dirtiest, and no disrespect to the voice actor. They're, right. they're doing their thing. It is the dirtiest dub. It is the most I've ever seen somebody done dirty by a dub in movie history.
2: It is so jarring that I can't help but love it. But then I actually went back and watched the subtitled and that voice is emulating oh. what he's doing in the original. Not not quite the same. It's definitely dialed up uh, the camp factor by a lot. But he's he's doing some peculiar things in in the original cut, like his original voice. So it's not right. actually far off.
0: Okay. All right.
1: The oh, no. well, number one, the first time I hear Elvis's voice, I had a flashback to watching Kung Pao Enter the Fist. Ah. <laughs> and here- Hearing Master Betty's voice the first time, it's supposed to be that bad. That's the joke. But then I'm watching The Seventh Curse and I'm like, oh, no, that's not... Is is it supposed... Hilarious. But I think for me, again, kind of like Meg in the same way, there are so many moments that hooked me pretty quickly the first fight sequence again, this dude bursts in and prevents Chester from having sex to tell him the prophecy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But like they actually fight. That's the funny part too. He doesn't just burst in and yell at him. He bursts in, they have a full on martial arts fight. And then it's like, Oh, by the way, I'm just here to tell you something. Peace out. And he leaves. And it's like, why were we fighting then? Why did we have to ruin my apartment?
0: If it it makes you feel better. If you grew up Catholic, you just actually believe that somebody's going to break into your house and, warn you that if you have sex you'll explode i think that's just kind (laughs) of like what you end up so like that scene to me i was like yeah it makes sense yeah totally Totally the the
1: ghost of jesus christ comes in with nunchucks and just prevents sex
2: (laughs) But, you Correct. know, that hits on something that I, I kind of miss these days, something that the 80s did really well. And I think movies need to go back to a little bit is like the shorthand. You don't have to overexplain your world yeah. building or your logic. Just accept it at face value. This movie demands that you just go with the ride. And I think that's something that a lot, a lot more movies could stand to do
0: yeah And did not you had a second thing i think that you were going to bring up a second scene that really did it for you
2: oh so yeah
1: fine. oh no you're totally fine uh but the part that won me over a hundred percent and gave me the we're in on this moment is so we're, we're in thailand we, we're seeing the curse start to take effect let's say or in, in whatever sense we're seeing some sorcery
2: progressing, yeah. yeah yeah
1: we're seeing some witchcraft we're seeing some things happen and sorcerer elvis's sorcerer is doing his thing and one of his henchmen you know henchman number 37 comes up and says something that he doesn't agree with 100 so elvis just sorry the sorcerer just whips open his his robe and this little like quado looking wormy thing just jumps out of nowhere and starts biting the guy's neck and then bursts through alien style chestburster style but it is so caked in blood and it is just dripping with blood and it's such a gory moment and that was where i knew the film was actually going to give me the horror elements i wanted that's where i knew the genre hybrid was going to work because the first moment you're giving us some real good fantastical violence it is over the top and excellent so like fully practical having so much fun with it and again that moment is so hilarious because meg what you just said this is a movie that makes you just roll with it. You have to accept that things are going to happen that are going to be out of left field, but that's just what they are. And literally just opening his robe and this giant little, this little creature just kind of wiggles right out and it's just like, yeah, no, I'm in. I'm in. I'm here.
2: That's what the worm tribe worships. Got it.
0: Yep. I and I love, you know, it really does have like Peter Jackson levels of gore, right? It does not shortchange any of that. And and it if you're a gore hound, that it is worth it just for that alone. But I think I think that the the moment that hooked me, which is sort of a weird moment given all the other zany stuff that's happening, is the scene uh, where Doctor Un and the I don't remember his name. Chester, the, uh, the, sorry, Chester. You're right. That was my rule. Where Chester and the sad sack American or British uh, archaeologist that that it, it, like that like uh, gets possessed, changed ethnicities, and then dies because you know. He's <laughs> done, done for this. Um, but there's a scene, there's a scene where they're trying to escape in a vehicle. And, you know, I don't remember the exact phrase, but there's that great quote from John Wu, which is basically where he's talking about Hong Kong stuntmen. And he was like, people asked him what the biggest adjustment was to working in America. And he was like, you know, the in Hong Kong, I would just tell a guy, like, run through that door, jump through the window, fall three stories, and then like roll and keep going. And they they'd fucking do it. There is so much stunt work in this movie where I'm like, people got hurt. Like people got badly hurt when, when the car is like running through the camp, there are people that are just full on hit at 30 miles an hour by this vehicle. And there is no amount of like wire work or anything else. Yeah, And it feels weird to be like, that's obviously not something we should do or emulate, but there's something, I don't know. There's something kind of beautiful. It speaks to the level of commitment that these stunt actors were basically like, fuck it, hit, with, hit me with the car. Like, bring it on. I don't even care. <laughs> yeah. There's just there's just a commitment. There is just a a willingness to do whatever it takes to make it look good on screen, whether it is gore or action or whatever, that you cannot help. But, you know, I, and I don't care if you're a horror fan or not. I don't care if you're a gore fan, whatever. You can't help but recognize people That are not phoning it in, that are giving 110%, in a lot of cases giving up their bodies in order to make this stuff work.
2: Yeah.
1: But I mean, just thinking about movies that try to go for this level of ambition and absurdity and to do it all practically too. I think this is the movie, like kind of came out, I think it was 86 or 87, around there. And it was just 86. Yeah. So it's the golden era for. We're going to do it practical. We're going to have fun with it. It may not look good because let's be honest, like some of the effects here look like they could be like styrofoam and popsicle six. Like that is a reality of some of these effects, but some of them
2: are gorgeous. So so
1: exactly, exactly that. Like some of them are gorgeous too. So like, I'll take the moments where it looks like a really do it yourself at home costume versus the scene where they're scaling a giant statue fighting monks. And like they are on this set, just climbing up this gigantic thing and having to fight off like or defend themselves at the same time. like there is so much beauty in that practical nature. And I, it's just, again, like Sony movies try for that. Sony movies try to achieve that and uh, kind of don't do it as well as Seventh Curse does. And I just think about, God, like at the end of that statue scene, they get up to the top and it's you know it's Black Dragon and um, Chester. and they have to take the eyes out of the statue. And they don't just cut some stone out. They start cutting the stone out and you see the head of the statue wiggling like it's alive. And then when they get the eyes out, just this super ruby red liquid just starts projectiling out of the eye sockets like blood. And all these details are, are what are above and beyond. It's like the things you're not expecting, but all of a sudden like this is what it's doing. And like, I am just still in awe on a second watch, like of soaking that in and just being like this movie just goes for it. And, I, I again that's where the demon when comes in and I know demon yeah, when does yeah. it unintentionally and that is the difference here because seventh curse absolutely does do what it sets out to do but at the same time I'm like how the fuck did you set out to do half of this
2: I this has such a tiny tiny little needle to thread you know because it is so many big movies in one and yet lamb makes it seem cohesive And I think he does that through just pure love for what he's doing and humor. Like there's humor that kind of is running through the core. So between like the passion for cinema, you know, which is evident and his sense Mm -hmm. of humor, somehow that makes this into a cohesive movie when in like so many other filmmakers' hands, this would not work in any shape or form.
0: Yep
1: there is a 38 minute flashback. (laughs) I mean, like literally the first act of the movie is a flashback. And can we be honest? Like how many filmmakers could like pull that off?
0: Yeah. And I, as I think about it, I think the one thing that really stood out to me, my favorite thing about the movie is just sort of the large scale crowd work piece too, because I feel like, you know, I, I, the only, like Hollywood filmmaker that I think the the few, there are a few Hollywood filmmakers that do kind of like crowds of people with like pockets of action quite the same way that this movie does. James Cameron is somebody who comes to mind, whether you love the avatar movies or not, James Cameron is really good at having action happening at multiple levels with like multiple characters fighting in the background, but having it all feel like it's part of a, a grand thing. And I, it just made me realize that even sort of like the, the best action movies that are released each year, you know, we'll see five people fighting, we'll see six people fighting, but in this film, there are 30 people in the background. The cop scene, there's 30 people doing stunt work in the, you know, the battles with the worm tribe. There are 30 people doing gunfights and martial arts and stuff like that. It just creates kind of like a visual scope and scale that, that we don't see anymore because nobody's willing to hire 30 people to do stunts in front of the camera and have to reset that shot 20 different times
2: which this is going to be an odd one kind of a left field one but this is why i appreciated *Bo is afraid because so much of that is Mm. background sight gags that's like adds depth and scale that you're not anticipating from a movie of that nature i mean you wasn't necessarily expecting it here either um but yeah i appreciate that because for like you said there's there's so much texture and world building that that adds, never mind like the artistry of having all of these stunts in the background while there's other stuff happening in the foreground. It's crazy technical skills that you're juggling there.
0: Or a complete disregard for the safety of your background people, too. You could get to one or the other. Like, you're either really, really good at technicals or, like, that guy got hurt, but whatever.
2: But they're so committed because you see a lot of, like, viral stuff on Twitter where they're making fun of uh, extras in the background of, like, Scream or something or whatever. And they look like, you know, they were caught up with their pants down, weren't prepared for the cameras to roll. That is not the case here.
1: Well, I mean, that's another left field comment, but I mean, my favorite scenes in Babylon were when they're trying to shoot the massive fight sequences yeah. with, like, you know, however many hundreds of extras. And there is something that is so encapsulating of that. Like, it, it's not just seeing some CGI people in the background or now the threat of AI background actors. It's a bunch of people doing their own things in a large, massive, chaotic group. And, like, and they're that so is, committed. And it's just so fun to watch, too.
0: So I, I think that is the, uh, I don't know who's going to get the the restoration release of this. Uh, I'm sure the rights are a mess. Let's say maybe it's our friend Brad Henderson. Whoever does, I'm encouraging you to put on the front of the box, um, the Babylon of Hong Kong films, Matt Zanotto, and then I don't know where you want to be attributed to we got this covered just because... I gotta, I gotta get a little dig at you there. Yeah,
1: no. If that, if that's the quote, probably put it there because I did not like Babylon. So, <laughs> comparing it to that, <laughs> I, I would rather not. I like the Seventh Curse. I do not like Babylon. I do
0: like Babylon. That's a podcast for another day, and not this particular podcast. Not certified forgotten. All right, that brings us to the million dollar question that we always answer at the end of the show, Meg. We're going to start with you. We have established that this movie is a madcap affair that needs a larger audience. How does something like The Seventh Curse find the kind of devoted fans that we've all become?
2: I don't know, because I've been trying for years, to be honest. I mean, I've written about it. I've definitely tweeted the hell out of it. Um, I did see that maybe it was not in vain. I think there was the In Search of Darkness doc that they had a mention of it. So I think really, I mean, I don't know, my entire stance for many years is just keep screaming, just keep screaming about it. I mean, word of mouth is really the most tried and true and effective piece is just to keep screaming about it. I'm going to podcast. You invited me on. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> so yeah. Hell
0: yeah. Donato, what's your, uh, what's your rediscovery plan for the seventh curse?
1: Uh, it's, it's the boutique route. Uh mentioning Mr. Henderson. I can confirm that I might've brought it up once or twice. And I also can confirm that it very much is a mess. Um, So the hopes of a boutique release for this, uh I would, pay so much money to own a 4k ultra remaster all that stuff but not crossing my fingers knowing what i know in any case
2: you i know s- though second sight might be the best bet because 88 films released it and it's uk second sight could give it proper love i just don't know we have to build the audience up first i think yeah. before they're going to commit to that so step one build up the audience step two second sight or some boutique step three profit
0: Correct. There it is. That's the most important step.
1: But I will say it's on Tubi. So the one thing I think that when we're talking about it and to mention it, throwing that little, hey, it's also on Tubi there, because that's how I tweeted about it uh, last night or the night before. I just made an offhanded tweet. And I followed it with like, by the way, it's on Tubi, get on this shit, you have homework. And like three people immediately were like, okay. And they were like immediately (laughs) mess, like they tweeted me back and they're like, oh man, this is so dope. This is awesome. I love this. That's usually
2: the response when you can convince somebody to watch this movie. They're like, holy shit, where's this movie been all my life? I've been trying to tell you. Yeah. So yeah, people who listen, you get rewarded. So, you know, listen to Certified Forgotten. That's all, all we're saying.
1: It's free on Tubi. That's that's the big thing here. It, like, if Amazon you just help, Prime,
2: Midnight right. Pulp. Like, it's surprisingly accessible on streaming.
0: Mm-hmm. And like, look, I'll say that if I happen in the future to be playing a game of Movie Grid uh, with my wife, and if Chow Yun-Fat happens to come up as the actor, and if I am not 0.001%, I will know that either Meg or Donato were also playing Movie Grid that particular <laughs> day. Because that's that's how it starts. We get the we get the movie grid points, then profit. I I don't know. No other better ideas.
2: <laughs> Sounds logical, yeah.
0: All right, you heard us here. Movie Grid sponsor the podcast and move into film distribution. I suppose. Uh, well, we'll join you online. We'll continue to shout about this film, um, and we will make it a little bit of our. Well, I think feel I feel like this is something that Donato and I can agree enough on that we could make this kind of, you know, the uh, the the face of certified forgotten for a little bit. Uh, but Meg, oh, if oh you God. do want to hear people talk about, if people want to hear more recommendations, if they want to learn more about why you love this film, but in particular what the next great thing that that you love that they haven't heard about is, where do they go on social media? Where do they go on online? Like where do they connect with you?
2: I mean, you'll find me all over. Bloody disgusting. Um, but on socials at Haunted Meg. So Twitter, down. Instagram at Haunted Meg. Same same thing.
0: Blue Sky? Can you come on Blue Sky? I miss, I am, I miss having I need... you. You barely use it.
2: I barely use it because it's there's no mobile right. They haven't done a mobile yet, which means I have. Oh, did, did they? They got
0: Yeah, they got a mobile. A oh, mobile okay.
2: App. I don't think for some reason I thought they did not, and it was just desktop, and that was a whole other thing. So that
1: yeah. that was spoutable. Spoutable didn't. Know. Probably,
2: yeah. Oh, see, I don't even know.
1: And Hive and right? Hive didn't have a desktop, so yes.
0: yeah. I mean, that is why I, the the part of the reason, it's not the only reason why I hold you in high regard, Meg, but one of the biggest reasons why is because you came on to Blue Sky to tell me about Warrior going to Netflix. You were like, Monagle needs to know. I think it was Warrior on Netflix. You moved all the way into a different platform to just be like, hey, Matt, I know you're not going to see this because you're not on Twitter. You need to know about what's going on with Warrior. That was like, that's the... That's lifelong loyalty kind of stuff right there.
2: I I feel like that's my favorite thing to do is once I know you have favorites, I want to make sure you're aware of said favorites. So yeah, that was like, it it wasn't even, it was just instinctual. Just like I will tell you that Boy Kills World trailer is dropping and for warrior reasons, you'll probably want to tune into that.
0: Andrew Koji! I'm very excited for him.
2: He is so funny in that.
0: He is, Hollywood needs to turn him into a star. This is not a warrior podcast though. it very fucking well could be. (laughs) Donato, uh, where do people connect with you online?
1: Same as always, at DonatoBomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. And I am just gearing up for some South by coverage. So look out for that shit.
0: Am I going to be seeing <laughs> both of you in Austin next month? Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Very cool. Uh, as for myself, you can follow me at monogol.bluesky.app or whatever the 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 thing is. I can never remember. I, I should get better at remembering what that is. Uh, you can also follow Certified Forgotten at CertifiedForgotten.com. You can go to Patreon.com slash Certified Forgotten. We have been really hitting our rhythm with uh, the free weekly newsletter that we offer to to folks who follow us on Patreon. So if you would like to get a peek behind the scenes or basically just listen to me dunk on Donato a little bit in the newsletter for the way that he dunks on me in other places, it's worth, a, it's worth a follow and it's absolutely free. And then later on, if you like what you see and you want to financially support the site, Hey, that's pretty fucking cool, too. Meg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for bringing us this little gem. I don't even I like, you know, life before the seventh curse and life after the seventh curse. I I know I liked it a lot, but I know at least six people that I am going to be texting after this conversation and being like, you got to watch this film. So I'm excited to uh, to share what you have shared with us and then keep the good the good times going.
2: That is the best that I could have ever hoped for for this movie. Yes.
0: Donato, take us home. The worms are highly prolific. Gross.